Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders, innovators, and strategists who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Mark Gottfriedson, partner at Bain & Company. On today's episode, he'll discuss market consolidation in the mobility industry and the impacts of economic downturns. We hope you enjoy this episode. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks, Grayson. I'm excited to have you here because, to say the least, it's interesting times in the mobility markets. We're starting to see divergence from the public markets to the private markets. And Mark, you're an expert on all things markets and and economics, and Bain has a really great practice in that. I want to start by diving into the public perception of autonomy. If you look at the public markets, they're in trouble. We had the SPAC meltdown in autonomous trucking led by Embark, which is down 97.44% year-to-date as of December 2nd, and Aurora, which is down 87.21% year-to-date as of December 2nd. It's only decreased investor confidence. I was looking at the Tiger Global 13F filings. They're slowly selling out of Embark. You have Kathy Wood at ARK Investment. She's sold out 100% of Too Simple. With major funds liquidating, the company's not performing in the public markets. In your opinion, what is going to be the long-term damage to the autonomous vehicle industry? So that's a big question, um, Grayson, obviously. Let, let's start a little bit with, uh, with a little bit of background. You know, I think even a couple of years ago, uh, I was on a, on a webinar that, where we talked about the, the whole idea of SPACs. And the problem with SPACs as a vehicle for, for things like mobility really has to do with that you, you get in that SPAC, you get a pile of money. And then if it looks like you're going to run out of that money, <laughs> you may not get additional funding. You know, the, the traditional venture capital model is sort of a, you know, there's an angel round, there's a B round, a C round, a D round. If you meet certain milestones, the public markets act very differently than that. As soon as you get SPAC'd, you're now a public company. You have quarterly um, earnings calls. And, uh, and the, the market starts looking at your cash burn. The market's never happy when there is either no revenue or no credible path to, uh, to revenue and profitability. And that's why you see the, the big drop off. And this is even with companies that, you know, arguably could be healthy. Take an example of Canoe, which, uh, which, which came in as a SPAC, it has dropped, you know, its, it's, it's uh, market price has dropped more than 95%. And yet it has a $2 billion back order, backlog of orders. And, uh, and you would say, hey, you know, this is a company that actually is meeting milestones, has contracts. It should be worth something. But, but the SPAC vehicle just makes it very, very difficult for the market to respond positively to it. I, and so I, I think when you say public markets, you're talking about, the, in my mind, a lot the SPAC market. And that has been a disaster for this kind of investment. On the venture side, however, is... As, uh, as I think you, you noted, there's, there continues to be interest. Although, let's, let's talk just a little bit about what's been happening in the venture capital market. The total number of deals is off by about 30% this year. The total dollar value in venture capital generally is about 50% off. And the number of deals in mobility is off by about two thirds. Now, a lot of that has to do with where we are in the economy and people becoming much more cautious and the evidence that I have for that is that actually in the third quarter of 2022, the venture capital industry has had record-breaking fundraising. Uh, they've raised more money than, uh, than, than they have, and, and annually this will be probably the best fundraising year maybe of all time for venture capital. 
So what's happening is you have a decrease in the number of deals and an increasing amount of dry powder. And so that, that, that means there's going to be money spent, but it is definitely more cautious right now. And, and, and as I will probably talk about more as we have this discussion, it is more focused on getting to profitability sooner. Profitability matters. Markets reward growing companies that are profitable. I repeat, markets reward growing companies that are profitable. I, I know several of the CEOs that went the SPAC route, and I asked them, to, the, to these gentlemen, why are you doing a SPAC? I said, it's a bubble that's going to burst when the Fed turns hawkish. Well, it's a giant pile of money and the terms are great. I said, you're going to lose your company. It's a giant pile of money and the terms are great. It just seemed that there was this SPAC mania. I believe that was the cover of Bloomberg Business Week with um, Social Innovation Capital. It, it just seems that there's going to be this carnage there. When that carnage happens, do we see these companies merge together as they go through a delisting process? At the end, of the, the investors that were, I'll use the word naive enough to jump in, will get burnt. But what's going to happen to those companies and all that valuable IP? Private markets value IP at a pretty significant premium, depending on the IP that you have. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to when you when you look at these companies, as they, as I mentioned earlier, the problem with a SPAC is you get that big pile of money, and then if you run through it, where do you go from there? Because the market, it, it, you really can't go back to the public markets. Then you have to go back and see if there's somebody from a venture capital perspective who will actually fund you. And, and But basically at that point, your reputation is tarnished. And so I think there will be some carnage here. I think there will be some companies that actually have some very promising products that will go under. But I also think that some will be able to pivot and they'll find some, some sources of capital because they can point to, wait a minute, we're actually profitable if you look at it on a variable basis, we just need to scale this thing. And if you can make that argument and, and that's compelling, I think there will be you know some funding for you, but it may, may no longer be under the umbrella of a public company. If you look at different metrics to determining profitability, Gaddock, which is in the private markets, it's backed by Eric Schmidt, it's backed by Coke Industries. They're focused on a per mile profitability metric. And I talked to Gaham, he's been on the podcast. You Gaham, any plans to go? Nope, I'm staying private. We're going to focus on our metrics until we can show the market long-term profitable revenue. Why are more companies not taking that approach? If you look at companies that are being incubated inside of companies that are doing really well, they're taking that approach. You have Alphabet, which is incubating Waymo. You have GM, which is incubating Cruise. And if you started to notice, they're starting to publicly declare some, even though the numbers are light, they're saying we're getting revenue and they're they're putting it out there. GM, for example, on their balance sheet, breaks cruise out as a line item. When cruise becomes profitable on a, on a publicly accepted basis and they're growing revenue, does GM eventually spin that out to unlock that value when GM could say, okay, we've been profitable, say, for for eight, 18 months, we've been profitable for 24 months or eight quarters, 10 quarters. Do we actually see that spin out because there is value there and there is a track record? You know, I, I think doing a spin is always a possibility. Um, the other side of it is I think part of the reason to start breaking it out and showing revenue is to is to highlight to the public markets that we're making progress and to hopefully get a pop in the, in the share price based. You know, if you're GM, you actually want to be a tech company. And so... You know, you want to say, look, a lot of a lot of our company is tech related. And by the way, we're getting revenue on it. And I think that the, the, the breaking it out is less about a spin right now. In fact, I think GM would, you know, would like to figure out that this is the future of their business. 
you know, an analogy that I that I can think of here is the pharmaceutical industry. If, if you think about the pharmaceutical industry, they do a lot of uh, you know just basic pure research, knowing that in their portfolio of pure research, there's going to be things that end up being products or not. But but the way they have to think about it is they have to think about we have to have revenue today from the portfolio of products that we developed many years ago, and that's going to pay for what's going to happen in the future. You know, you if you're working on a cancer drug, you don't know whether it's going to work or not. It's very hard to put a, an NPV or a specific business case on it. So it's not an NPV-based calculation. It's a strategy-based calculation, and it's a portfolio-based calculation. And, and that's the way that they manage it. And that's, you know, that's how companies like GM or Ford, other OEMs should be thinking about the future You've got to have a strategy which plays into what the future of the world is, which is electric vehicles, and it is um, autonomy, and it is shared mobility. You've got to be playing in those markets because that's where the future is going to be. And you need to have you know, a portfolio of investments that you're going after. Some of them may not pay off, but, but to the extent that you're getting any traction, you want, to, you want to share that with the world because you are a public company. You want to be... a technology company, you want to demonstrate that there is a strategy that makes sense that's going to play out for us in 10 years and uh, and have the markets appreciate that. I really like the pharmaceutical analogy. That's the first time I ever heard that pharmaceutical GSK or, or, or Merck, they're known for large research and development budgets. You're right. They have to find, I'll use the common term, blockbuster drug. They always have to work towards that next blockbuster drug. GM, in my opinion, doesn't get enough credit for what, if you want to use the research and development from a pharmaceutical standpoint, what they're incubating. They have Bright Drop, companies on track for, for a billion dollars. Mary Barr has the entire electric vehicle strategy that she's been working on. You have the Ultium battery inside of GM. And you have Cruise. It just seems like all these pieces will eventually overlap. The GM's building the Cruise Origin. That runs on an Ultium battery. If you're going to buy a Cadillac... That runs on an Ultium battery. If you're going to have eventually your goods delivered by FedEx, that comes in a bright drop vehicle, run on an Ultium battery. Well, who's the common denominator there? It's GM. You're right. If one of those just hits and becomes a nice, say, a nice new multi-billion dollar year revenue stream, that's a very good thing for patient investors. Exactly. And it's, you know, and it's a great example of a company looking and saying, where is the industry going to be 10 years, 15 years from now? And how do I develop a strategy that, that is going to pay off in that uh, in that long term thing, because you know the other side of it is, I, I think uh, you know many of the OEMs potentially risk uh, you know a real decline in their business if it gets you know if they're not not in tune with where things are going from an electrification standpoint, and if they're not in tune where things go from a mobility standpoint, then you know sooner or later they start losing share, even though in the short term, they save some money on, uh, on, on some of the research and investment that, that other companies were making. Does the financing model eventually start to change as the large OEMs introduce more and more electric vehicles? You're seeing there's autonomy, a startup out of Santa Monica, I was started by the founder of AutoTrader, that's doing subscriptions. You're having several subscriptions in the European market. GM has a bank or a financing arm. Land Rover Jaguar has JPM. Some have Wells Fargo or Bank of America. Do we start to see the, le- quote unquote, the lease reinvented as a subscription where you say, okay, for X amount of dollars a month, you're going to get the vehicle, unlimited mileage, you're going to get your charging, you're going to get your insurance so the consumer can know, okay, my monthly expense to operate this vehicle is X dollars, especially as we go into a potential financial downturn? You know, it's interesting. We've been watching the the idea of subscriptions now, at least, you know, I've been 
um, involved in working with clients in thinking about subscription models since about 2015. And 2015 was just really way too early for it. But if you look at uh, consumer research and, and people's willingness to, uh, to consider a subscription model, that has gone from you know, less than 10% of the people to just in the last year, that number has crossed the 50% threshold that people, when they're buying a vehicle, would consider a subscription model. That doesn't mean that they're all going to take it. And uh, there, are, there are advantages and disadvantages. And there are also some, still some business model issues in terms of thinking about, you know, there's many dimensions you can think of on a subscription. Um, you know, do you have the right to trade your vehicle out for a, a vehicle of a different type uh, when you need it? You know, when you're going camping, could you get a different vehicle than the one that is your normal subscription vehicle? And, and getting some of the utilization um, terms to work from a subscription model standpoint are difficult. But I think the trend is there. You know, we, we have subscriptions for music. People are getting more used to the idea of subscriptions. They're more about experiences and things like that. And so I think we're still in the nascent stages, but I think it will be growing and I think it will become a significant segment of the market. I, I think it's a long ways to say that everybody's going to go to a subscription model. Ha having said that, you know, when we get to full autonomy and, and and people are shedding their vehicles because they can access an autonomous vehicle anytime. I, I think the model does shift at that point in time. I fully agree with that. What caused the the 40% increase in enthusiasm? Is it is it budgeting? Is it convenience? Is it the ability to have experiences or different options of vehicles? And from your research, what has caused that 40% increase in enthusiasm? I think it's a, a number of factors. You know, I mentioned to you that people are getting more used to the idea of subscriptions to the extent that uh, the people are seeing real value in it. In other words, this could work for me. It's, uh, it's, it's not higher cost than if I do a lease. Those kinds of things are, you know, factors that, you know, the, the auto companies have started to figure out how they can make it economical for the consumer. And, uh, and you know, that's really the key. It, the consumer might pay a little bit for convenience, but the fact is most people don't have massive amounts of extra money to pay for convenience. You know, they, they have a certain amount of money that they can pay for a vehicle. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about consumer purchase behavior is that, you know, about 95% of the population, when they walk into a dealership, they know how much they can pay per month, period. And they buy the most car they can get for what they can afford per month. That's, you know, what, what their budget is. And, and so to really make the uh, subscription model work, you, you, you can't charge a huge premium for convenience. And I think that's one of the things that the OEMs have learned. The OEMs have, have learned a lot. I'll share some insight here. Um, I studied in depth of the Porsche program from the original subscription and the Cadillac program in subscription. And speaking to a lot of the Porsche executives in Atlanta where they ran one of the pilots, I said, how's it going? They said, we would get phone calls. I ran out of gas on the side of the highway. Bring me a new car. Because somebody found out in the terms of the terms of use that, that you could swap out your car, even if you run out of gas. And people would, individuals would take advantage of that. So you're right. We have to get the terms right. And the other issue is from, from the Cadillac program, having experienced that firsthand, was the positioning of the vehicles. If you want to swap the vehicles, the consumer does not want to wait a long time. So all these logistical things, and they do not want to go to a airport parking lot. They want to go to, example, Cadillac was in negotiation with the Beverly Hills Hotel. Go to the Beverly Hills Hotel, you get into your new Cadillac. Ah, oh, this is a great experience. I'll pay a, a premium for that. If you look at individuals that are going into the dealership, they have a fixed budget, what they know they can afford every month. 
as you go to a subscription, what role will brand play in that? Because if you look at a, certain levels of Mercedes or BMWs or Jaguar Land Rovers, they're aspirational brands. Individuals want to aspire to own them, to drive them. If, say, a traditional lease for a, um, a high-end Mercedes is 1500 and a subscription can come in at 1200 do you see more consumers trying to stretch their budget because they want to have that experience, they want to have that self-confidence of driving that large Mercedes? Well, certainly um, all of the OEMs, when you look at where they put out subscription programs, they started at the premium end of the market because the perception is that that's where the consumers are willing to pay more for convenience, more for the, uh, you know, the brand image, the, uh, the, the cachet of doing this and so on and so forth. And, and so, so, yes, I think that's where it starts. I, I think you, it, it moves down market if you can get the economics figured out. But, you know, in the beginning, it starts. It starts in a market where you're trying to sell a concept or you're trying to sell a brand or, or exclusiveness or something like that. When we move into full autonomy, what becomes the defining factor? Waymo will get you there safely. Cruise will get you there safely. In your opinion, what becomes that defining factor? Let's just say it's both $12 for, for both vehicles, the same amount of distance, same amount of pickup time. What becomes that defining factor? Yeah, so it's, it's, that's a tricky one. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the challenges for the OEMs in particular is that the hardware itself becomes a little bit commoditized. In other words, you may want a luxury vehicle, but you don't really care if it's BMW or Cadillac, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's a luxury interior. It's appointed in certain ways. I think that the differentiation will be less about the brand themselves and more about the use case for which the vehicle comes to pick you up. So if you, if you are a businessman, uh, you know, somebody who has an interior configured that provides the most productivity on the commute um, and those kinds of things. That's, and then, and then creating it, you know, that we're the first to have gotten there and we have some brand around that um, it will really be the defining factor because in many ways it, it really does become a commodity. And that is, you know, a change that's going to happen in the, uh, in the overall profit pool, if you will, is that, the fear of the OEMs, I mean, what everybody says is we become the Foxconn of the mobility space, right? That's the fear. But when there's fear, there's opportunity. I, I, there's the Buffett saying people get greedy, get worried. When, when they're worried, get greedy. I'm paraphrasing that. I look at this and you're right, the Foxconn. I see the vehicle you called a, a commodity. I see it as a platform. I see it as a platform to build upon it where you could put an app store or experience. And I see the, the experience is both from a digital perspective and from a real world perspective. Give you an example. I was speaking to an AV company who's no longer existence in Miami, all about how I see the experiences rolling out of Miami. I said, your biggest thing that you need to conquer in Miami is exclusive valet parking and drop off for your customers in front of the restaurant. And then to go to a Dolphins game or go to a concert, do you have a, do you have a dedicated lane? Your consumers will pay a premium for that, not having to wait in traffic to be able to go see a concert or get the premium drop-off at a, a restaurant. How do you see the experiences when we get to autonomy? For example, this is an exclusive cruise drop-off lane. This is an exclusive Waymo because we saw there's precedence because we saw it there with Uber and Lyft in the, in the early days where they had preferential treatment at stadiums. Do we see that kind of repeating itself but enhancing it as we get to autonomy because you can do more stuff inside of the vehicle? I think what you've said is exactly the way that it will go. And, and the question then becomes, you know, who, who gets the profits 
you know, from making that change, you know, who in the value chain is, is it the platform owner? Is it somebody like Apple who has the, uh, uh, you know, the software that, that runs all of these things, or, or is it a specific company that's providing the service, the fleet owner, um, who's actually, actually making the revenue off of this. But I think, you know, you, you actually raise an interesting thing, this idea of having unique, a, a unique lane for Cruise or a unique lane for Uber or a unique lane for, for Waymo. And I think, I think that's one of the issues that has, has slowed down the whole mobility thing is that there are many, many things that you have to do that are outside the autonomous software stack, if you will, to actually make all of this work. Because if you're dropping off at a, uh, at a stadium, those drop-off points are chaos. And, you know, a, a, an autonomous vehicle is going to have a difficult time, you know, identifying some guy who's pointing to you and saying, you move over here and you move over there. And, and so, you know, they're all problems that can be solved. But like you say, they end up being solved sort of individually. How do we manage the parking, you know, the, the entry to a stadium? And then because we have to interact with the stadium, who gets to the stadium first? Who gets the preferential rights? Those kinds of issues are actually huge, huge issues that the software in the vehicle itself can't solve. By definition, cannot solve. It cannot solve, and that's why you need individuals that are multifaceted, multi-talent. In order to do a deal like that, you have to have sponsorship experience. Oh, you want to come on the stadium? We own the, we own the land. We, you're going to have to pay a premium. You're going to have to build experience, or we're going to build it in-house and we're going to license it. That's where it has to come down to. You have to look at everything through experiences. I think a lot about the platform and who owns it. If it's Waymo or Cruise, to perhaps they build a a highly regulated app store where you're Mark Enterprises and you want to run an AR augmented app. Okay, you can put that on there, but then they get a cut very similar to what Apple's getting a cut. Because when I look at autonomy, I go against the grain on everything. I think the first rollout of true autonomy that's profitable, I repeat, profitable autonomy will be high-end luxury experiences. And I have this theory that I've been pontificating on a while and I've run some pretty in-depth financial analysis on. If you And I'll give you an example of this. If you look at where Mr. Arnaud, Mr. Arnaud from uh, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy is taking LVMH, Mr. Arnaud, in my opinion, is moving to vertical integration where they acquired a few years ago Belmont Hotels. They're expanding the Cheval wine, Blanc wine brand into hotels. And when, you, when I speak with executives that work for Mr. Arnaud, they say, we're trying to figure out how do you build the world's best luxury travel experience where we can integrate Ruinart, we can integrate Dom Perignon, we can integrate our various Dior or shopping brands and these whole different experiences. And we saw this recently with the recently opened Vuvico pop-up in Australia. Do we get to the point where LVMH partners with an autonomous vehicle company where they develop the interior to meet the LVMH standards. And then this is where the TikTok Instagram influencer crowd comes in. You can buy an exclusive handbag in that vehicle because if we look at history, Mr. Arnaud has always wanted the Birkin and the Kelly bags. They called the Wolf and the Wolf and Cashmere clothing. He was never able to get it because the poison pill the Hermes family took to stop it. Louis Vuitton bag has a 42% margin on it. Let's just say your average bag is $7,000. So now you're at $3,200 on the ride. That becomes the most profitable autonomous vehicle ride in history. Do you start to see these luxury brands go in there because it's profitable and then perhaps they share 20% or 30% of that with the operator and now they're making money as well? So this is an interesting question. And it's a, you know, it, this is a sort of a broad, if you think about business management question. I mean, I, 
and I don't want to pull the camera too far back here, but if you think about, you know, Clayton Christensen and his talk, you know, his, his discussions, he always thought that something good enough comes up from the bottom and, uh, and, and, and then takes over from the big players. Tesla actually flew in the face of that. Tesla started with really luxury vehicles in electric vehicles and has built their business coming in from the top. And so there's a question here. Is it going to come in from the top or is it going to come in from the bottom? And, uh, and you're talking about fully autonomous. Well, in many ways, I think it'll happen both ways. So right, right now you have a lot of, of use cases that are starting to be developed that really come at, you know, I, I would describe it as good enough situations. So we talked earlier about the fact that Cruise and Waymo now have some driverless vehicles, but they have those driverless vehicles in very, very small contained areas, right? Where you can actually manage it. And they haven't demonstrated that they're profitable yet, but they're working. And, and that, you know, that, that can allow some additional funding and things as we've talked about in the past, but it's very narrowly defined. But that's not the only place where autonomy is actually finding real profitable niches. I mean, John Deere in agriculture, for example, is doing some amazing things. And the farmer community is absolutely gaga about what's happening with John Deere tractors and what it means for their productivity how it gets them out of the cab, they can spend their time on other things. And, and, it, and the autonomous tractor does so much more than they can do as an individual. Caterpillar claims that they have three times as many miles as any OEM or Waymo with you know, experience with autonomous vehicles because their vehicles are mining vehicles and they are, you know, they're running that. You have, you have examples starting to come up at Haneda Airport with uh, autonomous buses or in Seoul, Navia, with with uh, with the autonomous vehicle that they've got, that is in again in a very contained area. You can you can reserve it on your app. These are things that I I would describe as coming from the bottom up. As you come up from the bottom, you start asking yourself the question: Where else could we actually apply this? And and I think that what happens is you get go from a, one adjacent autonomous opportunity to the next. And at some point, somebody will come up with a very luxurious thing, which is sort of a park and ride type of thing. So, you know, they've got, they've got an autonomous vehicle that works very well in, say, downtown Manhattan. But now they've figured out how to get through the Lincoln Tunnel and over to New Jersey to a parking lot. And now you can drive to the parking lot, get in the vehicle, and it will take you to your office in Manhattan because it knows how to man manage that that middle uh, of Manhattan, you know, to a, a direct endpoint. And then you'll get a little bit limited. Well, I could come pick you up within certain neighborhoods and so on and so forth. And then you get to, I think what, you know, what you're talking about, which is, Hey, you know, I'm going to provide you the, the best luxury experience. And that luxury experience, it might be, you know, I mean, I, I was talking with a company called landline just the other day and, and basically, they've they've created a a bus that you know from from Atlantic City to uh, to Newark, and you can you can now book your your travel from Atlantic City through Newark. But the first leg is actually on a bus, on a luxury bus, and uh, and you know you, but you go through TSA in Atlantic City, 
at a much less crowded TSA location. You get on a bus, it takes you right onto the, uh, the, uh, the tarmac and then loads you onto your connection in, uh, in Newark and sends you on and you can actually order that up. You can reserve that through, you know, your app. Well, that's the same thing that's going to happen with, you know, eventually those buses will be autonomous because it'll be a very direct route that they go on. And those are the kind of applications that I think you're going to see building up over time. Will there be, you know, I, I think it then comes into all kinds of use cases. In fact, my view of mobility is we see it going from use case to use case to use case. And some of those will be just as you say, you know, the high-end luxury experience kind of a use case. Does that make sense? Bingo. You hit the nail on the head. The reason why I'm so bullish on, on LVMH, it's resort areas. They tend to be they tend to be close to either private airports or public airports. They're, they're, it's a constrained domain, because if you look at hotels, the metric that they're measured on is available uh, revenue per room. They want to know what, what is the revenue per room. The biggest thing that they always want to when are you coming and when are you when are you leaving? Because then they can then they can optimize their rev par. So now they know when you're arriving. Okay, let's say I'm just going to use small numbers. Say the airport's five miles away. We've done this trip a hundred thousand times. They know when you're coming and going. They can increase their their revenue. That's where I see autonomy going. It's very similar to what you described with landline. It's going to give landline the ability to increase their revenue. They know from Atlantic City to EWR Newark, they know that route. They know all the time, and then they can coordinate with United System. Okay, the plane's delayed by 45 minutes. Okay, we know that. That becomes this great experience for the consumer because autonomy can eliminate the stress. If you're going to the airport, is the plane going to be on time? Is there going to be traffic? Think about all the stress from what you described can be eliminated. For a consumer, it's priceless. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I, I, I think there's really, the, the limitations on this are really just our imagination in terms of the, uh, the use cases and the possible business models that could be achieved. And in my view, you know, when you sent some of the questions, you said, you know, that you, you quoted TCI, who had said that enthusiasm for self-driving vehicles had collapsed. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's an interesting statement. It is true that the what I call the all singing, all dancing model of autonomy is is a little bit slower than everybody at one point thought. You know, I mean, I, you know, five years ago, the idea came out and we all thought, you know, in two or three years, we're going to be, you know, commuting in autonomous vehicles. We'll be going on vacations in autonomous vehicles and so on and so forth. And and that level of of, of autonomy has not happened, partly because of just the autonomy is more difficult, and partly because of what we already talked about, which is that you, you it's not just the software in the car. You actually have to interface with the environment um, as well. And all of those things have, have slowed them down. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it's we're more likely to see those kinds of things in the late 20s or early 30s than we are today. But that doesn't mean that there aren't tons and tons of use cases today. I mean, there's, there's this company called Autonomy, spelled with a, an O, that has autonomous delivery vehicles inside the Pittsburgh airport, you know, which is a, a very heavy pedestrian-rich environment but is delivering food within the airport. You know, who would have thought of that? But it's just your imagination. You know, think about what a consumer might like or what would be convenient for them. And if you can provide that, now that you don't have a driver and you're just providing it with software, you can do things at a cost that you never could before. And 
there's a whole world of potential creativity. And I do believe that a lot of business models are going to be funded. I think there's a backlog of funding. Uh, and I think that business models will be funded for creative ideas that have a path to profitability. I'll give you another example of a very creative, it's, I forget, I think it's at Gerald Ford Airport in Michigan where they're, they're prototyping autonomous wheelchairs where the wheelchair can take the passenger to the gate and then when it has to go back to a thing, it drives autonomously. That is a really great practical use because you don't have the labor cost of the individual taking it back to the TSA checkpoint. It can go very, it's, in a, it's a constrained domain. You know all the stuff. There's a lot of really great things. And mining, we have the, the lithium and cobalt boom. There's over 1,100 heavy-duty autonomous mining trucks operating in the world. And when I speak to the, the world's largest miners, they say to me, we're doubling and we're tripling down on autonomy. And I said, is that because technology? They said, no, we can't get the labor to, to meet the growing demand for the minerals. That market, mining, as we've, we've all seen, Rio Tinto, BHP, extremely profitable markets there. They're boom and bust, but right now they're profitable. When you talk about business models, the one that has not been talked about a lot, John Kraftcheck, former CEO of Waymo, talked about it at high level here and there, but never really went into it, is the licensing of the technology of the autonomy stack. When does that model start to emerge? You will start to see it emerging, I think, very soon. Because if you're John Deere and you've got um, some tra tractor technology, and you say, this is really working, but we have some great technology here. What are some other use cases for it? Well, then John Deere's going to say, yeah, but that use case is not really our business. It's outside of agriculture. It's not our core, but we can see how our technology really works there. Let's license it. That's when the licensing starts. It's when you're moving into the adjacencies and those adjacencies are a little bit far from the core, but now your core is actually the software. That's how the licensing world starts to move. Now, I think John Kraftchick and, you know, all of them, the way they saw it is they saw it as sort of like Intel inside or something like that, you know, that you would have the all singing, all dancing stack and it would be a winner take most stack. And, uh, and so you rush to try and get the all singing, all dancing product, be the first to market, and then you license it to everybody uh, once you've got it in place. And I think that, you know, to a certain extent that will happen when you get to the all singing, all dancing, and you know you, you now have you know mobile fleets by city, and they interact with the city. And if you have the best software that works with LA or Chicago or whatever, you'll be able to license it to a lot of fleet owners, and and you'll be the big winner. But I think there's lots of other licensing opportunities from from many of these other situations that will come up, and people will say, hey, there's another use case for the software we just developed. If we just tweak it a little bit we could then license it to another industry. I think that'll happen. The beauty about licensing, it's profitable and you can you can grow that revenue very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean it's there, there's very low fixed costs on that, so the money goes straight to the bottom line. It, it's a great business. We look at profitable companies. You have to think of Apple. We had the news recently that the quote-unquote project Titan's been delayed to 2026. It's going to be highway only. Nobody really truly knows what Apple's doing. There's uh, there's a lot of assumption. There's quote unquote leaks, but nobody truly knows what Apple's doing if they're going to build a car. What is your opinion on where Apple's going? I look at where Apple's going. Oh, it's a toxic. I don't look at that. I see it as an extension of the App Store as another way to continue their, their growing their very, very profitable services revenue and then leveraging the Apple stores as a it's called an information learning center. You can go there to learn about the vehicle. This is how it interacts with everything. How do you see and where do you see Apple going with Project Titan and their, and their car ambitions? 
So I don't have any insider information on Apple, obviously. And, and so anything that I say is as much speculation as anything anybody else says. But I think if you're Apple, there's a couple of things that I would say. They've taken a look at the world and they recognize that what's happening in the mobility industry is one of the biggest changes that is going to happen in our lifetimes. And if you look at the iPhone and the way that we use iPhones, that's one of those major things. But in the world of mobility, we're undergoing a, a change which is equally as big as the switch from the horse and buggy to the horseless carriage in terms of what it'll mean for our lifestyles and everything else. And so I think, you know, Apple is investing this in this because they're saying this is going to be one of the biggest changes in the world. We have to figure out how to lead in some ways in this business. And I think they're still sorting out, you know, what's our real core? Well, they can attract terrific talent. And so one of the things you say, let's start developing autonomy. Well, they started to develop the autonomy and they realized that, wait a minute, it's not just the software. There's, it's harder, all of this. So of course, it's taking them longer, just like it's taking everybody else longer. But, but they're working very hard to figure out how they can dominate some of the profit pools out there. And, uh, and I, I'm not sure they've figured it all out yet, but, but they're using their best minds to figure out how do we participate in that value chain. One thing that everybody can agree with, you can't count Apple out. There, there might be, oh, confusion, the project's a disaster. They have an install base of over a billion users, and they have a balance sheet second to none. You can't cap, count Apple out. That's the one thing that we can all agree on there. Mark, in your opinion, what is the future of autonomy? Another, another very broad question, but I, I think it's incredibly bright. You know, the fact that there are profitable use cases out there today is very, very encouraging to me. And, uh, and, you know, the, the press is still focused on the disappointment that we're, we don't have the all singing, all dancing um, solution today. But I think that you, you are seeing so many new innovative ideas coming out. Like I said, I think they're limitless. And I do believe that eventually we will get to the, you know, the situation where we'll be able to commute in, in an autonomous vehicle. I think it's several years out. But I think that what you're going to see over the next five years is a lot of emerging companies and technologies that are making money, that are growing fast, and that are expanding their, their capabilities in a dramatic way. Ultimately, all of our lives will be made better because of that. Well, you know, it's, it's going to be in you know, drones delivering packages to our homes. I, it, it, there's just no limit to the, the ideas you can begin to think of what you can do when you have something that can move around autonomously. Autonomy unlocks creativity despite all the, the press headlines of negativity, the industry's failing. I like how you said it because you're right. The future of autonomy is incredibly bright. The future of autonomy will have a positive impact on society. It'll, it'll usher in new business models. It'll create new companies and new titans, and it will impact every aspect of society. Mark, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, we shed an awesome light on all things markets and autonomy. Thank you. What would you like our listeners to take away with them today? Yeah, I think, I, I think, you know, the listeners who are going to be here are a lot of engineers. And, uh, and I think one of the things that the engineers need to be thinking about is the projects you're working on, how do they fit into that future? Those are the things that you really need to be thinking about is what's the game? What's the game the next 10 to 15 years? And how do you position yourself to be a part of that game? I think that's the key message. That's the key message. And for the engineers that are listening, build the future you have the skill set. 
because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is autonomous. Mark, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you, Grayson. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we speak with Pet Jarpeno, Head of Commercialization at Neuro. On this episode, he'll discuss the future of delivery using automated vehicles and the commercialization of shared mobility. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.